I wonder if you've ever heard of six degrees of separation. The basic idea is that you pick someone, a celebrity or someone famous, and basically, statistically, this person is probably traced to about six relationships away from you. Just six links. It's not that far, is it? There's probably another reason why people want to know how many degrees of separation they are from a big shot celebrity. The honest truth is, it's a massive ego trip. There's something about proximity to fame, isn't there? Something about being close to someone really famous. Perhaps we think of that, some of that magic will rub onto us. Maybe by association, some of their reputation and glory will be passed on to us. The disciples had reason to believe that they were rubbing shoulders with someone great. Starting from chapter 8 of Mark's Gospel, they've become convinced that Jesus is that someone great in their lives. They've seen his healings. They've heard his teaching. They've eaten a miraculous meal with 4,000 other people in the wilderness and they've wandered aloud with the crowds. Who is this man? And even if the crowds remain confused about who Jesus is, the disciples have drawn their conclusion. In chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus asks his core group of followers, his disciples, who do you say I am? Peter says simply, you are the Messiah. The Messiah meant the anointed one. He was the one whom God had promised to the Jewish people through the Old Testament prophets. Jesus was the one who would come to release them from their bondage to their oppressors. And for the first century Jew, this meant their Roman overlords. It also meant the beginning of a new and glorious age for Israel. And so from this point onwards, the disciples' expectations of Jesus' greatness increase. They begin to see his words and works in a different light. If he was the Messiah... Then his journey towards Jerusalem, the national capital, could only mean one thing, taking hold of the kingship. And it seemed to them that these things were being confirmed more and more with each passing day. Taking aside his three closest disciples, Peter, James and John, he brings them to a high mountain in chapter 9 of Mark, where the scriptures say he was transfigured before them and a powerful revelation of his glory. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. This was glory and power as they had never seen before. And yet to their surprise, Jesus begins to teach them not once, not twice, but three times about the suffering and death he would endure. And each time they struggled to square up their image of his glory with Jesus' repeated predictions that he would suffer, he would be mistreated and rejected, that he would die at the hands of Jewish rulers. And so Mark presents to us in chapter 10 here two conflicting paths. On the one hand, we see the disciples' expectation of Jesus' ever-increasing glory. And on the other, we have Jesus' prediction of suffering, death, and resurrection. 
This tension comes to a head this morning in these verses. As they anticipate Jesus' kingship, James and John, two brothers, make a power play to claim for themselves positions of honour. As we look at this brief encounter between Jesus and these two disciples, we'll see that because of Jesus' humble sacrifice, their human claims to glory are ultimately frustrated. Because of Jesus' humble sacrifice, their human claims to glory are ultimately frustrated. First, we'll see how for James and John, the glimpse of glory excited within them an ambition to claim glory for themselves. And next, the challenge of Jesus' glory inspires within them a self-sufficient pride to grasp glory for themselves. And finally, we'll see how Jesus, taking stock of these twin responses, switches the table. He shows all his disciples that his path of glory is one which ultimately crushes both human ambition and human pride. First, the glimpse of Jesus' glory excites James and John's ambition. In verses 35 to 37, we see these two brothers setting out to press their advantage through their relationship with Jesus. If Jesus was truly the Messiah, then their relationship with Jesus would be a tantalizing opportunity to harness God's blessing and power for themselves. What sets this train of events off? Well, recall with me, along with Peter, these two disciples were Jesus' closest companions. In Mark chapter 9, with their very own eyes, they saw Jesus transfigured into his heavenly glory. And it's this witnessed glory which triggers off for them a kind of selfish ambition. They say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do they ask? Look at verse 37. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Do you see what they're asking? They're asking for positions of power and authority in Jesus' royal court. To be seated at the right hand and left hand of a king was to be the second and third in charge. They want to become leaders in a new order with Jesus at the helm. And they were ready to do so by putting themselves ahead of the other disciples. James and John's words reveal to us the desire of their hearts. Their vision of Jesus' future glory sparked inside of them a great ambition to seek for themselves a place beside him. Yet in their words, they they honour Jesus. They call him teacher. They speak of him coming in his glory. Jesus is still the leader. They're just pledging their support for him. What's wrong with that? What's wrong is that they're saying their loyalty comes with a price. They want to pledge support for Jesus, not by serving under him, but beside him. Here are the political ambitions of these two brothers as they make their power play. To secure for themselves the best seats of authority and influence in Jesus' coming kingdom. It's not so different in our day, is it? In the last five years, our country has gone through four different leaders 
And most of these changes in the prime ministership have not occurred because of general elections. They've occurred primarily because of party room squabbles over power and leadership. They've occurred because of backroom deals and power plays. And more often than not, these changes have been justified to the general population in terms of the national interest. Self-centred ambition is alive and well. And why is it a problem? This is the reason. It's part of a recurring pattern of sin which we see right from the beginning of the Bible. As Adam and Eve were lured to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Bible is clear how they came to disobey God's command. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate. They were lured by the appearance of the fruit and they desired its effects. They wanted to have wisdom and be like God. From the beginning, self-serving ambition, this desire to achieve a status to rival God, has plagued sinful humanity. It not only sets us apart from God, but sets us up as his enemies. If we're honest with ourselves, isn't this the way we are too? If we had a fail-proof opportunity to gain for ourselves honour and power, wouldn't we take it just to be king for a day? Given the right opportunity, wouldn't we press an advantage for a better position for ourselves? And Christians, in particular, are not immune from it either. Could it be that sometimes we treat our relationship with God in Christ as a kind of special pass to ask for ourselves an advantage in our daily lives. We might even couch it in terms of how we might use it to glorify God. Yet if we truly examined ourselves, how often have we placed our desire for secular achievement and success as something God should grant to us so that we can glorify him? Very quickly, we forget our position as redeemed sinners before God. Very quickly, we forget that God does not need us to glorify him. Rather, it's us who need him for our life and being. As a remedy, listen with me to Jesus' take on glory from verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's a countercultural perspective of what glory looks like. Jesus came not for self-serving ambition, but in self-giving service. As the Messiah, the one most truly deserving of service, he denied himself service and instead served others. In the same way, the Apostle Paul reminds his readers of the same thing in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Yet for James and John, human ambition isn't enough. Just as the desire for self-centered honor and glory sets off their ambition, the desire for self-sufficient worth inspires their pride. As they encounter Jesus' glory and seek to prove themselves worthy of it, 
we see that the challenge of Jesus' glory inspires human pride in them. In response to their request, Jesus says in verse 38, You do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? You see, as Jesus answers James and John's request, the brothers misinterpret what Jesus has to say. Instead of hearing Jesus' warning about the cost of his glory, they hear Jesus' answer as a challenge. Rather than hearing, you don't know what you're really asking for and being humbled, the brothers hear, do you have what it takes to do what I will do? It's a challenge which wounds their proud hearts. And so the brothers respond, we can. It's a response of self-sufficiency. What do we feel when we feel that our worth and our identity are challenged? What do we feel when we're told that we did a lousy job? Our pride is wounded. We feel pressure to step up to the mark to prove ourselves worthy. And to do that, we need to do the job without any outside help or interference. We want to be self-sufficient. And so unable to back down, these two disciples feel the need to prove to Jesus their loyalty and worthiness to him. It's foolish and prideful, precisely because Jesus is absolutely right. They don't know what they're asking. They don't understand what Jesus means by the cup and the baptism. Because if they did, there'd be no way they could ever answer, we can. What does Jesus mean by the cup and by the baptism? Both of these are common images in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the cup could have been a symbol of blessing, but more often it was a symbol of God's judgment and anger. When Jesus asks, can you drink the cup I drink? He's referring to the judgment and death he knew that God had prepared for him to experience. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem was not to receive a cup of blessing and honor, but to receive a cup of suffering and judgment. As for baptism, the Jews would have been familiar with this water ritual, which signified the washing away of sins. Here Jesus is saying that in completing his earthly mission, he would experience a baptism, a plunging into overwhelming distress. He'd be subject to physical torment and mental agony. And ultimately, he'd be plunged into the depths of spiritual separation from his heavenly Father. How does this fit together? Again, look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No, Jesus isn't throwing a challenge for James and John to rise up to and be counted worthy of his glory. Rather, Jesus is asking them, can you suffer the way I will suffer and die the death I will die, bearing the sins of the world? And the truth is they absolutely cannot because Jesus alone must do this for them. Maybe this morning this very thing is what is hindering you from coming to receive the Lord Jesus as your saviour. 
This gospel logic to be rescued from sin means that we must come from a place of weakness and need. We must come to acknowledge that for far too long we've lived in self-sufficient pride. And that even though we fail and hide our failures, nothing is as liberating as being told your sins are forgiven. Not because you are living up to some standard, but because of Jesus meeting the standard of perfection. And so even as James and John respond to Jesus' question, they show their ignorance. Their readiness to commit shows how much they think that within themselves they have the ability to experience what Jesus will experience. In contrast, Christ's road to glory was not a challenge to show self-sufficient pride, but one of humiliation, offering his life as a ransom for human sinners. And this is the path which Jesus finally explains. He doesn't give an answer to James and John's request. It's simply not on his agenda who will sit on his left or right hand. Yet as he finds his disciples indignant at the brothers, but secretly also craving for the same kind of glory and honor, Jesus sets two contrasting perspectives of glory before them. By showing his own path to glory, one of sacrifice and humility, Jesus sets out to crush his disciples' self-serving ambition and self-sufficient pride. First, he sets before them the way of glory and power of the Gentile rulers. In verse 42, he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. This is the power which disciples mistake for glory. It's the kind of positional authority which they're familiar with under their Roman overlords. And yet, ironically, they anticipate the same thing in the new kingdom under Christ. At the heart of it, Jesus says, this is the desire to exercise authority over others. What James and John wanted was not merely to rule alongside Jesus, but also to rule over their fellow disciples. This is a world that's not unfamiliar to us. We are political creatures by nature. As we go about in a dog-eat-dog world, it's the very same kind of political jockeying and jousting we see in our workplaces and in the political arena. Maybe closer to home. We might see it in something as simple as a group of friends or family deciding where to go for lunch after church. Not so with you, Jesus says. The kingdom of God consists of the opposite mentality. We see this in verse 43 to 44. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Here's the crux of Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God. It's a life of humble service. Instead of self-serving, it's other-centered. The paradox is striking. The one who is to be great is to be the servant. The one who seeks to be first is to be the slave. And yet even in seeking to live this way, our motivations must never ever start from self-serving ambition or pride. It's all very well as set out to be the most humble servant. But it's no good replacing one conception of glory 
one of powerful authority with another of meek servanthood and seek after it in the same way. Unless we jettison ambition and pride, we completely miss Jesus' point. How are we to do this? If we are to live the life of verse 44, Jesus indicates firmly, we must take note of the basis of such a life. And that's given again in verse 45. Verse 45 reads, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The word for tells us this is to be the reason for the words in verse 44. In saying these words, Jesus turns the focus of glory from what we are to do to what he came into the world to do. As the Son of Man, he came into the world from glory in heaven. And though he was deserving of every service, he did not come to be served, but to serve. Even though it's the height of indignation for a king to serve his slaves, this surprising reversal of roles is the very source of our salvation. In God's economy, there is no other way to be saved except to receive Christ's humble servant-hearted love. This drives a stake through the disciples' selfish ambition and self-sufficient pride. If their leader, the one chosen to be the Messiah, is to come to serve them in humility, who are they to desire to commandeer positions of influence and authority? But not only in service, but also through his life. The last part of verse 45 reads, to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom in the first century was a payment offered in exchange for a good or a person held hostage. As a ransom is paid, ownership was transferred to the one paying. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom payment for many lives. As members of this human race, the Bible calls us sinners, men and women who have rejected God in his goodness and kindness and are destined for condemnation. And in doing so, we have sought our own way in self-seeking ambition, self-sufficient pride. When Jesus offers himself as a ransom for many, these words are a direct echo of an Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 53, a character called the suffering serpent gives his life in exchange for the release of sinners from God's anger. Isaiah 53 verse 12 reads, He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. As Jesus utters these words, not only would they have had significance to these Jewish ears, they would have spoken directly to their conviction of sins. Jesus was saying that his divine mission was to give his life in exchange for theirs condemned by sin. It's this life given in self-sacrificial love which erases the need for self-seeking ambition and self-sufficient pride. This morning, maybe you're here because you're interested in the radical, countercultural life Jesus Christ calls his people to. Perhaps you've come desiring to find fulfillment and satisfaction in your life, 
but you're tired. You're tired because even after all your efforts, because after your ambitions have been fulfilled, you find that they don't provide the sense of rest and significance you seek. Don't leave that feeling hanging there. Six degrees of separation do not cut it for Jesus. It's not enough to be connected to him via a chain of family and friends. He needs to break into your life to serve you, to ransom you with his life given for you. What you need is a personal relationship with Jesus. And he offers it here. Look again at that crucial verse. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Will you lay your ambition and pride to be served by the King of glory? As we finish this morning, we're reminded that very often our conception of glory jars against Jesus' picture of greatness and glory. Even though we want to lay claim to glory for ourselves, Jesus reminds us that his kingdom is not filled with the glory of ambition and of pride. Rather, it is filled with a grateful people, thankful for his humble sacrifice for them. And its glory is characterized by the humble sacrifice of those in it who always seeks the good of others in love. Is this where you belong?